Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Ace Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. Once again, time for our memories with Vuce. Steve Usenich, the A's longtime clubhouse manager, announcing his retirement after 54 years with the organization since its inception back in 1968. And we're taking this opportunity on a weekly basis to stroll through the memories of what it's been like to be around this organization since day one. And it's interesting, Vuce, as we have this conversation this week, you're at Fenway Park. And Fenway, of course, a historic place and you know, a place that the A's have had some memories. And I'm sure you have as well watching how things have changed over the years at Fenway, where it's become, you know, a tough ticket to get, you know, a very good organization. And I'm sure as the A's have come to town time to time again, something comes to mind for you. There is. I mean, my first trip here was 1973 and the Red Sox were in a disarray and trying to rebuild and get competitive again. And then my next trip here was 75 in a playoffs in Boston. And uh, they won their first two games here. We came in. We started two lefties, or which everybody thought that was the death of the A's. We started a whole spinner by the blue. We didn't play very well. We didn't have the catfish on He had gone to the Yankees. And so then we went home and lost game three. So we lost those playoffs. But then we came out here again in 88 and 90, started both series here, the American League Championship Series. And we won both games here and won to uh, a four-game sweep in both 88 and 90. 90 being the year that Wade Boggs got a lot of publicity for the wrong reasons. And I don't think their club was together at all. They were, they were in disarray in the clubhouse. I saw a couple of players before game four already packing their bags where if they didn't pack, I mean, if they would have won that game, they would have had to play in Oakland the next day before traveling back here. And you can just tell that they, they weren't into it. They didn't care. Um, and then we lost to 2003. We won the first two games in Oakland. Game two and be that dramatic bunt by Ramon Hernandez that won the game and then uh, came back here and had to win one out of two games or one out of three total and uh, got beat. Rich Harden gave up a home run in extra innings on Saturday night. And Sunday, uh, uh, Hudson's hurt, so he can't pitch. And we lose that game, go back to Oakland and lose game five. So there's some bittersweet memories of uh, Fenway, many series in between, just regular season series. Remember the one year that uh, – Terrence Long caught a ball over the bullpen fence to end the game. And it was like, if he, if he doesn't catch it, the game's over. Red Sox win. If he catches it, well, A's win. So there's been some uh, dramatic moments even here in regular season. Moose, we were talking <laughs> about this all the time in the press box, and I'm sure you, this story has come up time and time again in at Fenway. When you walk down those wooden stairs, 
and walk through that dark corridor that leads out to the dugout. Just the uh, the lineage of people that have walked through that, and then guys that have gone out to the Green Monster and gone inside the Green Monster, singing for the first time, maybe you know, signing the inside of the Green Monster. Uh, there has to be some interesting stories about that. There are. I mean, the players always talk about it. as soon as they get there. One of the veterans will say, "Hey, we got to go out there. You got to sign the wall. Come on, check out the inside of the Green Monster." Um, but you're right, that hallway with the wooden steps from the clubhouse to the hallway and then a wooden planks floor all the way to the dugout. You think of every player in American League has walked through there, plus a bunch of other choice uh, national leaguers with postseason and everything. So everybody's walked that hollowed hallway, we call it. Um, and uh, it's a special place because it's almost like Detroit, Old Tiger Stadium used to have a urinal halfway through there. But this one doesn't, and, and so it's just directly into the dugout. Moose, when, we, when we, we started this last week, we were just kind of touching a little bit on, on the first year. You know, 1968, athletics are in town, and it's a winning season. You win 82 games. But um, this is going to be a storyline that we will revisit time and time again, and that is Charlie Finley, the owner of the team, and how he finds a way to continually put his stamp on things. Some ways good, some ways bad. How did 68 end, and what were the anticipation? What were the thoughts about going into 69, second year out in Oakland? Well, in 68, we, like you said, 82 and 80, Bob Kennedy was our manager, and he'd gone up to Charlie's office after the game. He was called up there, and he thought he was going to get an extension, maybe another year or two. Anyway, uh, he was fired, and Charlie made the announcement that they were going to bring in Hank Bauer. And Hank had managed – the Kansas City A's before going on to the Orioles, a world championship in 66. And so the players were kind of taken back by that. I don't think they were in love with Bob Kennedy as a manager, but they were kind of hoping that Johnny McNamara, who was then the third base coach, would move on and become manager. A lot of the guys had played for Johnny Mack and young and now becoming manager and a successful guy, given as you see how many different clubs he managed over the years. But Hank got the job had a, uh, he was an ex-Marine, and he came in with a, a stern uh, disciplinarian way, and uh, it went okay for our guys until it kind of fell apart in August. And somewhere along the line, August or September, Hank made the statement that the players had quit. They had given up, and that wasn't true, and that didn't sit well with Charlie Finley or the players. So I think it was the last week or two they brought in Johnny Mack and gave him the job, and Hank stepped down. And then Johnny Mack managed in 1970, and – Unfortunately, he had all the problems with uh, the Reggie Jackson holdout because Reggie had hit 47 home runs in 69, made the all-star team. And uh, the uh, perception was we were going to have a great club in 70, and we got off to a bad start. The Reggie holdout didn't help. At one time, uh, Charlie threatened to send Reggie down to the minor leagues, AAA, to get his swing back. And a funny story, and I bring it up to him all the time, is Back then, the players, after they got out of the game, they would come up to the clubhouse. They might not hang out in the dugout. And Reggie had pinch hit or got taken out of the game. And he and another player went back into the clubhouse. And Charlie Finley came out and said, there's no way those guys should do that. And that other player was Tony La Russa. So it was La Russa and Reggie that walked back into the clubhouse. And Charlie really blasted them in the media for, for what he's considered giving up. So anyway, 1970, we had uh, Johnny Mack, and it didn't finish well, and you just had a feeling that Johnny Mack was going to be out. 
and that's what happened. And they brought in Dick Williams, and uh, he taught our guys a lot more fundamentals and was a disciplinarian also and led to uh, three uh, division championships under him. And he really taught our guys how to play. Our guys had a couple of years in the big leagues, all those guys now, uh, two or three years, and uh, he did the fine-tuning for us. I'm going to take a step back, if we can, Hoos. Uh, when the A's had the 50th anniversary, April 17th here, and Luke Krause, who has since unfortunately passed away this past year, was the starting pitcher that night. He threw out the ceremonial first pitch. It was uh, 2018. Uh, Lou Trevino still talks about making his major league debut in that game as maybe his greatest, his greatest thrill. I read a story about Lou back in the day when he and Dave Duncan were going through some tough times uh, in their personal life, and they decided to try to save money, and they were roommates for a little bit on the road. And Charlie got wind of this and wasn't happy about it, and Lou apparently had a gun with him, and he shot bullets out of his window, you know, out into the, you know, just just to the, an office park across the street. Is that does that bring any memories back for you at all? Well, Lou Krause and a gun was back in Kansas City. And Lou probably had a little drink and for fun shot the gun out. Now, as far as Duncan living with him, no. I know in 1970, Dave Duncan and Charlie Lau, who was our first base and hitting coach, were both going through a divorce and they were living together. And that didn't set well that a coach and a player would live together. So you've got a little bit of the story right, but the wrong years. And, and Luke Krauss wasn't with us in 70. He had been traded. Um, but the, the gun incident shooting that off was actually in Kansas City. That makes sense. The, 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 the question is, as Charlie came to town, and as you're watching this team, you know, begin in its infancy in Oakland, even though it's, you know, a long time established in the American League, what was it like for Charlie on a daily basis? Were there was it constant bickering? Was he constantly on the phone? Was he constantly involved with lineups? How, how much, even though from back in Chicago where he lived, to to pick up the phone, uh, to meddle with the the inner workings of the club? What was that like on a regular basis? Well, Charlie wasn't out very often. When he was coming out, we all knew about it. It was. The secretary tried to keep it a secret. Usually somebody else in the office would hear about it and they know everybody's putting their ties on in the office. But uh, he didn't come out very often, but it was like, oh, my God, God's here. He's walking in. Here he comes. It'd be kind of like Al Davis with the Raiders. And uh, the players respected him. didn't like him, but uh, they respected him and afforded him re respect. But he would come out, you know, and maybe he'd be out six, eight times during a year. Um uh, I, as far as lineups, I can't say he never dictated lineups. He might have. I think he might have made suggestions more than anything else. I know Chuck Tanner, his one year with us in 1976, was so happy the season ended. And he says, Charlie never tried to dictate a lineup to him. He was just happy that he didn't dictate one, let alone try to force it on him. So, obviously, Charlie did that. He came up with the rotating pinch hitter, second baseman thing in 1972. We had all those second basemen. And we'd pinch hit for him. Of course, that time he had, he had nine pitchers, so he had 16 position players. You could do something like that. But Charlie's involvement was day-to-day, -day, more so with the front office than the actual manager. I'm sure – I mean, I know the manager got a lot of calls, and I don't know how many times Charlie might have yelled at a manager. But Charlie was a good second guesser, and he couldn't watch the games because there weren't that many games televised at the time, so that 
why he would have uh, the phone put down by a radio to listen to the calls of Monty Moore on radio. Later on, he supposedly had had Hammer dictate the game or broadcast the game to him. Um, but he wasn't out all that often. At one time, he had said he was going to move his insurance business out to California. Well, I think he really looked into it and figured out he, he's better off staying in Chicago. So I kept him in Chicago because that was still his bread and butter. You, you touched a little bit on, on Dick Williams coming in and being the right person at the right time to, to take this club to the next level. And I know in future shows we'll, we'll spend a lot of time on Dick and those marvelous uh, three years of winning back-to-back-to-back world championships. But leading up to that, as, as you're seeing guys like Reggie and Catfish and Vida comes up and Salvando, Joe Rudy, how good do they think they were? Did, did this collection of players believe that they're – you know, on, on the cusp of, of putting together the kind of run that they did with five straight trips to the postseason? Well, you never know how long it's going to last, so you can't say, yeah, we're going to win five divisions. But um, I think they knew they could win. They won together in the minor leagues. The talent was there. Uh, they uh, uh, The leadership needed to be, and Dick Williams was the right person coming in at the right time. Like I said, I, I didn't realize, and other people have said this too, that they didn't realize how bad we were in fundamentals in 69 and 70. And, and that was a sticking point with Dick Williams. And you had to make the right throw to the cutoff man. You had to throw the correct base, uh, listen to the coaches. So uh, Dick was strict that way. And we got off to a, a kind of a funny start the first year. We, in, I mean, his first year, 71. And we went, I think, 0-3 and we made a trade. Traded Philippe Alou for a couple of Yankee pitchers. We lost a doubleheader on opening day to the White Sox. And I'll never forget the talk was, and Harry Carey, that was his first year with the White Sox, and he and Charlie didn't get along the year before when he was here, said, as soon as the second game was over, said, although I'm here in Chicago, that's, Charlie Finley, he just fainted, listened to me. It was just kind of a funny thing. Um, but then we made a trade, and we got off to a good start. There was a there was a charter flight to Milwaukee in 71, and word gotten out that one of the bullhorns that the, the planes would have on board uh, disappeared. And word got to – at those days, we only had one bus to Dick Williams, the manager, before we left the airport. And he said he wanted that back because – Bus is not going anywhere, and if anybody wants to call Charlie Finley on that, I've got his number right here. You go ahead and call him. And about 10 seconds later, this bullhorn dropped out of a window in the back of the bus. And it was kind of a moment of, okay, Dick, we got your back, or we're going to go on and play better. And we went off on a tear that year and probably won the division by 16, 18. When you you, you talked about Harry Boos, he, he had already been a successful and popular broadcast with the Cardinals, not yet to the White Sox and not to what he became with the Cubs. But still, Harry Carey was a, a prominent name in, in baseball broadcasting. Do you have some recollect, recollections of, of Harry around the club? Well, I remember one time, I went, and here I was, I was an 18-year-old kid, and we're going to take a cab out to the ballpark in Anaheim. It's probably a $5 cab ride at that time, not very far. So I'm waiting for a cab, and Harry says, you go to the ballpark? I says, yeah. He says, okay, I'll ride with you. 
We get to the ballpark. Harry's quick out the right door, and I'm stuck there paying for the cab. Here's a, I'm, not, I'm making minimum wage, and who knows how much money Harry was making. So he was thought of to be kind of cheap. But I kind of established a relationship with Harry later, not so much with the White Sox, but with the Cubs. I'd run into him. I'd see him in spring training. We'd frequent the same restaurants, uh, Italian Joint in Phoenix or Don and Charlie's. And I'll never forget, I was down in San Diego in 84 for the playoffs between the Cubs and the Padres. Cubs won the first two games in in Chicago, came out to San Diego. Padres win the first two, then they, they win the third one to go to the World Series. And I go into the press lounge, and there's Harry all by himself. And he could never remember my name, but he knew where he knew me from. So he'd always say, hey, Oakland, hey, Oakland, come over here and sit with me. So here's Harry, the biggest name in broadcasting at the time with Chicago Cubs, sitting with a little old clubhouse guy, me, after they'd lost the biggest game in their history. Did you Harry know? Harry also liked to visit the nightclub. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, Harry liked to visit the nightclubs down at Jack London Square a lot. So his name was in the society pages occasionally <laughs> in the early years did you see the leadership growing for sal bando we always call him captain sal and even you know bob melvin to this day refers to him in you know in that in that way did did you see those attributes coming to the forefront almost right away from the beginning of 1968 it's just guys i'd say looked up to him with their respect of what he had to say he didn't try to take over and be a leader but he was a natural leader uh, and uh, then became Ken and uh, guys looked up to him. They talked to him. There was thoughts about him being a player manager at one time. Uh, so he was a natural born leader, a smart individual, an honest person. And if he didn't have anything good to say about somebody, he wouldn't say it. So that's why he kept quite a lot. Well, the A's starting in 71 begin this playoff run. They went 101 games, and, and they go head-to-head -head with the Orioles. I want to get to that next time and begin the uh, the journey of 72, 73, and 74. That's that's just part of, of having 54 years with this club and so many great things to talk about. Boose, thanks for Episode 2. We'll keep it going. All right. Enjoyed it. Take care. Steve Usenich, Memories with Boose, Episode 2, as we continue our journey of 54 years with the A's franchise. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.